So Romans chapters 6 through 8 deal with the subject of the sanctification of the believer. And sanctification, very simply, just means the process of us being made Christ-like. By the time we get to chapter 6 of the book of Romans, uh, essentially what we have, if we boil everything down, is we have two things. At the time we get to chapter 6, we have, first of all, flawed sinners, and that's us. We have people, uh, it's been proven and shown that we're all under sin, that we've fallen, um, and that there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's conclusive by the time we get to chapter 6. We have flawed sinners. What we also have is we have a perfect Savior, And that God sent his son into the world. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And thus we have a savior, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life and yet paid the price for sinners to be saved, to be forgiven of their sins. And he did that through his crucifixion, sealed it with his resurrection and then holds it through his ascension. So we have flawed sinners, and we have a perfect Savior. And we had one event that took place. So flawed sinners, a perfect Savior, and the event that took place is that we have a sacrifice that has imputed the status of perfection to the flawed sinner. So because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, now the flawed sinner has been made perfection in God's sight because of what Jesus Christ has done. So flawed sinners, a perfect savior, and a sacrifice that has imputed perfection to the flawed sinner. And so that's what we have by the time we get to chapter 6. But there's a problem. And the problem is that although the flawed sinner is now viewed as perfect because of the Savior, you still have a flawed sinner. You still have a human experience that struggles with sinful tendencies, with fleshly, carnal desires, things that destroy and steal life, things that defile and offend God. Those things are still present even though salvation and perfection has been imputed through the cross to the sinner. Now, God didn't save us just so that we could have a perfect status and yet stay in a flawed, sinful condition. His desire is to change us and make us Christ-like. And so we have flawed sinners... But in that we have a perfect Savior, what we have is a model. Jesus has become the model of what God now wants to change us into. And that change, us going from flawed sinner to looking like, or more like, the perfect Savior, is this process of sanctification. God changing us from the inside out, rooting out and killing the old and giving us the new, the, 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 um, the, the character of Christ that's within us. And so Romans chapter 6, there was a declaration that was given to us. 
And the declaration is that we are now free from sin. We're no longer held by it. We're no longer slaves to it. We no longer have to obey its call and its pull upon us. We're freed from it through the body of Christ. That's the declaration that was given to us in chapter 6. In chapter 7, we saw that we experience frustration. And the reason for the frustration is because when we come to life in Jesus Christ and recognize what God wants from us, we try in and of ourselves to give God what he wants. So we say, you want righteousness? I'll give you righteousness. And so we make promises and pledges. We set up boundaries and begin to build disciplines into our life in order to produce the righteousness that we see that God requires. Only we find that those standards and those things that God has laid before us, we find that though we are willing to produce those things, we do not possess the power to produce those things within our lives. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. And that's the problem with the law, the command, the standard, is that we can know what it is, the what of God's word, and we can even want it, but we do not have the power in and of ourselves to produce it, and thus there's a frustration in us, and we've all, I hope, experienced that frustration of trying to do God's will, trying to be what God has called us to be and wants us to be in the power of our own strength and falling completely short to the point where we say, is this even real? Can this even be done? But at the very end of chapter 7, Paul gave us the solution. And the solution is not a how. It's not a set of rules. It's not a new, a new attempt. It's not a principle. It's not a mind frame. It's none of those things that we can enact or do. But rather, he said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? It's a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the power that he gives by living inside of us through his Holy Spirit, that now we can be delivered from this body of death. And thus, by the time we come now to chapter 8 in this whole thing of sanctification, it's no longer just the declaration of freedom, and it's not the frustration of trying and failing, but now we have the means of living this victorious Christian life wherein the character of Christ is truly formed in us, where we are freed from the old, and now we can live in the new, in the power of the new. And thus, chapter 8, we now come to one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, at least in the whole New Testament. Because of the things that are written in here, they are absolutely sublime. And they begin this way, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore, and whenever there's a therefore, you know it's connecting to what was previously spoken. He says, there is therefore now no imperfection to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that what you guys have written in your Bible there? <laughs> it doesn't say there's no imperfection, does it? There is therefore now no flaw. 
<laughs> this is First Fleshalonians chapter eight. No. It says, "There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus." In Christ Jesus, we are not condemned under the law that can only frustrate and kill. In Christ, there's no condemnation. Jesus was teaching in the temple early one morning with his disciples, and he heard a ruckus. And there was a group of men that were coming in from the back wearing their robes and their hats, and they were decorated in all of their religious clothing and apparel. And they were dragging with them a woman, probably either wearing barely nothing or absolutely nothing at all, And they brought her into the midst of where Jesus was teaching his disciples. And as they threw her down, one stood and he said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery and the law of Moses said that she should be stoned. What do you say? She was caught in the very act. The mouth of two or three witnesses, it's being confirmed. You're the son of God. You're the teacher, the rabbi. You're saying that you're not denying Moses, so therefore, what should be done to this woman? Jesus stooped down and he began to write in the the ground there little by little, and he looked up at these men and he said, okay, whoever is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And it says, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the stones out of their hands and they departed from the temple compound until only the woman was left and Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus looked at that woman who had been taken in the very act, caught with witnesses. And he said, woman, where are those thine accusers? And she said, there are none, Lord. And Jesus looked at her and he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. And the declaration that Jesus was making for her to sin no more was not a command saying, okay, now try harder, fresh start. It wasn't a declaration, but rather it was proclaiming freedom upon her. You're free. Go your way and sin no more. You're not condemned. Now, how is that possible that Jesus could remove the condemnation from her? She was caught in the very act and he hadn't gone to the cross yet. Do you know how? Because he removed the accusation of the witnesses. When they left the room, he said, where are those thine accusers? And when the accusers were gone, now there was no witness. The Bible says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. And if you only have one witness, then the case is thrown out. So how does God... Make it so that you and I can come to a place where we are not condemned. Here's the answer. He removes the accuser. There are two witnesses that accuse you and I before God under the law. One is Moses. Moses is the law, right? And so Moses stands and he holds the law up and he compares it with our behavior and it declares us to be guilty. That's one. The other accuser is none other than the devil himself. Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. 
And so Moses stands up and reads the law. Satan plays the videotape of us succumbing to the temptation. And in the mouth of two witnesses, our condemnation is secured. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, what he effectively did is that he removed us from under the covenant of the law. And it takes away one of the witnesses. So do we still sin? Yes, we do. We fall short. Does Satan still accuse? Yes, he does. He tempts. He lays the snare. And then he accuses. But one of the witnesses has been removed and therefore the case is thrown out. John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Condemnation is in the world because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. But he that loves God comes to the light, and the light reveals his works. The chapter closes, John chapter 3, by Jesus saying, revealing that his works are wrought in God. You say, what in the world does that mean? That the sinners justified because his works are wrought in God? Wrought in God means to be labored out, worked out by God. God so loved the world that he gave his son, and in his son he worked out the conditions for our sin to be forgiven, and because of this covenant, us being taken out from under the law, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I are not condemned. The believer in Christ will not come into condemnation. Our sin has been completely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, there are some that have said that those words don't belong in verse 1, that they're not in some of the, the manuscripts. And, you know, the reason why they want to take those words out of that verse is because it kind of omits the power. It kills the power, the force of the declaration of no condemnation. Oh, it's conditional. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus if you don't walk after the flesh but after the spirit. No, no, no. It's not conditional. It's identification. Who are those that walk after the Spirit? Those that have been born again. And if you've been born again, according to what he described in chapter 6 and 7, and, and the previous chapters before that, then you're in Christ. You're in the Spirit. That's you. There's no condemnation. Now, if you don't receive Christ, and you try to do it on your own under the law of Moses, then you are still under condemnation. So there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is to those who aren't in Christ Jesus. Now, he goes on, and in the next, um, in the next pat in the section here, in verses 2 through 4, he describes two different laws. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, that's what we talked about in chapter 6 and 7, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He begins by talking about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. 
contrasted with what he calls the law of sin and death. Now, we know what the law of sin and death is, right? It's the law of Moses. And the law of Moses requires that we keep that law with perfection in order to live. This do and you will live. That's what Moses said by the Spirit of God. We've all fallen short of that law, and thus we fall under the condemnation of death. That's why it's the law of sin and death. It reveals sin, and it brings forth death. That's what it does. And every one of us are condemned underneath that law, because that law can't produce the power to keep itself. But he says now there's a new law. He says we've been set free from the law of sin and death by a new law, a higher law called the law of the spirit of life. What is the law of the spirit of life? Jeremiah chapter 31. God said through the prophet, behold, I make a new covenant with my people. In those days, no one will say, know the Lord. He says, for all will know me from the least to the greatest because I will write my law in their heart and in their mind. I will put my will upon the tables of their heart. I'm going to write it there and I'm going to dwell in my people. It's going to be a totally new covenant. It's going to be different. It's the law of the spirit wherein now the spirit comes into my life. And God is in my life working in me and working out through me his will and his desire for me. It's transformation and change from the inside. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. From inside, the Savior whispers and he says, he declares that we do hear his voice that we can hear him moment by moment if we're listening, that he is speaking and his will is being unfolded and shown to us. We're being led of him moment by moment as we hear his voice. We also have the word of God, the Old and New Testaments, divinely inspired, wherein God helps us to discern his will and his voice because he has recorded for us who he is. And what is right and what is wrong. And so in the law of the spirit of life, now I have a relationship with God where moment by moment I'm being led by him. I'm being taught by him. I'm being directed by him from the inside. I'm hearing his voice because he says that I can. And I have his word that's working out. And you know what the biggest difference, the biggest difference between the law of sin and death and the new law of the spirit of life is? is that the new law of the spirit of life produces the power to keep that law. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And you'll then be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the rest of the whole thing. So we now not only have his will written in our hearts, his voice whispering in our ear, the quiet ear of the inner man, The word of God unfolded and explained by his spirit that teaches us, but we now also have power on the inside to obey and to keep the things that he's telling us to do. And it's a completely new covenant from what we used to have. And so what does that look like? Now, I have the opportunity and I have the power to hear him moment by moment 
speaking to my heart, leading and directing me, and 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 discerning or, or calling the shots from inside of me what it is that I'm to do and what it is that I'm not to do. And in some ways, it's a much higher standard than what the law ever would have required of me because it's moment by moment. And I'm walking, but he gives me the power to keep that law that he has now written in my heart. It's the new covenant. It's a higher force than the law of sin and death that was constantly bringing me down. I've been made free in order to do it. Now, what does this mean? It means this. It means that I have four things. I have his will written in my heart. I have his voice whispering in my ear. I have his word taught and revealed by his spirit from the inside. And I have power to obey what it is that he is asking me to do at any given moment. And when I have all four of those things, and we have all four of those things, then I have everything I need I'm completely equipped to be sanctified. Change can happen in my life. The Christian experience doesn't have to be a frustration anymore because I can be led by him and I have the power to obey. I remember uh, when I was first learning how to snowboard. I didn't like it all that much because it just meant that I had, you know, a face full of snow constantly. I was constantly falling, tripping, hitting my head, you know, because I'd catch the edge and just poof, fall, go backwards, poof, fall. And I hated doing it. It was just pure frustration. But then I discovered how to use the force of momentum with the edge of the board, and all of a sudden there was a new power. And in that new power, I could not be knocked down by the hill, but I could control the hill and I could sail above it using the momentum and the force and the edge. And all of a sudden, what I previously was frustrated with and hated, now I loved and I wanted to do it. And when we take his will, his voice, his word, coupled with the power of his Holy Spirit, and we begin to yield now to the things that we know he wants from us, calling upon his power to perform those things within us and not our own, we find that the force is there because he gives it to us. And what was previously frustrating now becomes enjoyable. Lord, I want to obey you. I'm thrilled by obedience to you because I find that the power to obey has now been given to me by this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing truth that he's given to us. Notice in verse 4 that he says that the righteousness of the law is now fulfilled in us. Do you see that? It doesn't say by us. It says in us. In other words, it isn't a new effort, but rather we're just yielding to what he's placed in us and now his righteousness is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So, okay, you say, so what you've just told us is that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's right. There's no condemnation. If you are in Christ, you will not enter into condemnation. You say, okay, great, I can go. You say, why would I even care about sanctification? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The trumpet's going to sound and I'm going to be taken out of here because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So why should I bother with this whole sanctification bit? Here's why. He says in verse 5. He says, For they that are after the flesh do mind, think about, live for, prioritize 
the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the earthly mind, the natural mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now this is a great truth. And that is that to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You say, well, what does it mean to be carnally minded or fleshly minded? Jesus defined it in Luke chapter 12 by saying that we're not to think like the Gentiles think, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind. And how do the Gentiles think? He says, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? What am I going to put on? What, what here and now, where am I going to go on vacation? What am I going to do with my time? How am I going to be entertained? How am I going to be satisfied? He said, all of those things do the Gentiles seek after. So to be carnally minded means that I'm consumed with the material existence. That I'm constantly thinking about the here and now. What am I going to eat today? Where am I going to go after this? What am I going to do? How am I going to be entertained? What's the next thing that I can buy? And I'm constantly consumed thinking about the material world. That's what it means to be fleshly minded. You say, well, why is that death? Why does he say that to be carnally minded is death? The Bible tells us that God is a trinity, right? That he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it tells us that we were created in his image. And so man is also a trinity, Not Father, Son, and Spirit, but we are spirit, soul, and body. There's three parts that make up what we are. The spirit that we are is the part that's eternal, the part that lives forever. It's the part that can relate to God and that hears from God and that can connect to God. It's the spirit of man. The soul of man is our mind, our will, and our emotions, what we think, what we feel. All of those things comprise our soul, our expression. The body, the third part of man, is the medium, this thing that relates to the material world, the here and now that we're in. It's it's just a thing. It's matter. That's what our body is. It's not our life, it's not our essence, it's not our personality, it's just very simply the house that my soul and my spirit inhabit. Now, before the fall, before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he was connected to God in the spirit. The spirit of man was linked with the spirit of God and there was a beautiful union between the two. Man was satisfied because his life and his source was in God. Now, after the fall... Man was flipped upside down. The spiritual connection that Adam had with God was severed and cut off and man spiritually died. And now his body became what reigned. The natural realm is how he lived. His meditation became on the temporary things. 
What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to drink? Now, in this three-part thing, the soul is always in the middle. And the war that goes on is who's going to control my mind? Is my spirit going to control my mind being on top? Or is my body going to control my mind? What's controlling my mind? And so what Paul is telling us here is that if the body is what's controlling my mind, if I'm living after the flesh and I'm letting my body determine what my mind is going to think and what my mind is going to desire and how my mind is going to live, then that's going to result in nothing but death. Just ask Solomon. What's the meaning of life? That was the question that he asked. He wanted to know what the meaning of life was. And so he started where we all start, money. And he became so stupid rich that silver in his days was like clay. And he had more money than you could ever imagine or know what to do with, and yet his money didn't satisfy him. And so he said, well, money didn't work. It's not in money. And so I'll try women. And so he had a 1,000 wives and concubines, 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, after, after a couple of years, you don't even know who you're married. You see someone and you're like, do I know you? Yeah, yeah, you're, we're married. You know? I mean, that's insane. He had a 1,000 of them. And yet it didn't satisfy for him to have a 1,000. He said himself in Ecclesiastes that I haven't found one among a 1,000, not one, that was able to satisfy him. He wasn't satisfied by women. And so then he said, I'll try partying. And so he went out and he got wine and apes and peacocks and he brought in all these crazy things and they just had these, these huge bashes. It didn't satisfy. Then he tried hobbies. He gave himself to gardening and vineyarding. Then he tried education and he learned about botany and fish and trees and all these things and so much so that everybody wanted to know and learn from Solomon because he had such a great education and yet that didn't satisfy. And then he tried power and he was the most glorious king of all the kingdoms and not one thing satisfied and he came to the end of it and he said that there is nothing under the sun it's all vanity and vexation of spirit it's pure frustration. Because you cannot satisfy the soul through fulfilling the desires of the body. It is impossible. And that is why people that get what it is that they're trying to get then turn to something else like drugs or something else because they have to satisfy the thing that they thought they'd satisfy. It's an amazing thing, but the people that get to the top of where it is that they're trying to go you know, whether it's in sports or whether it's in, uh, you know, finance or whatever realm that they're in, the people that get to the top always get there and they say the same thing, that it's not what I thought it was going to be. And then they turn to something else. And the average person, including Christians, has in their mind that I'll be happy when... When I obtain this or when I get to this point or when I have this, that's when I'll be happy. If I have this degree or when I get to this place where I own this much real estate or if I, once I get there, that's when I'll be happy. And most people live in that realm. But the sad truth is that it doesn't satisfy. Once you get there, you realize that it's just not enough. It's never enough. And thus to be carnally minded, to let the body determine what it is that's going to make me happy, is death. 
because it constantly lands in emptiness and frustration and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Now, when a person is born again, and the spirit is brought back to life, it's regenerated, and now the spirit is back on top. Now, I'm living after the spirit. The things of God, the person of God, the worship of God, the word of God, the heaven of God, the eternity of God. The kingdom of God, Romans says later on, chapter 14, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And I'm finding my life and my satisfaction in God, in his spirit dwelling in me, in the relationship that I have with him. Now, the spirit is life and peace. Now I have life because I'm connected with God. I'm in fellowship with my creator. And the union that Adam had is now revived in me because of the spirit of God that's alive. And thus now I'm experiencing satisfaction, even though maybe outwardly in my body I'm suffering. Though I haven't obtained the goals and, and obtained the things that I was seeking after or wanting, I can still be satisfied because I'm in Christ. But here's the anomaly for the believer, is that we have the choice who's going to control our mind, our body or the spirit. One of those things leads to death and the other one leads to life. So the question is, who is controlling my soul? If it's the flesh, it's going to lead to death. If it's the spirit, it's going to lead to life and peace. You say, well, I'm glad that Paul wrote this, and I'm glad that Solomon experimented, but I'd like to try it myself. <laughs> I'd like to see for myself. The problem with that is that when you try to satisfy the soul through the things of the flesh, the avenues of the flesh, it leaves very deep scars and very sad consequences in our lives. It doesn't work. So what's been ruling your soul? Ask yourself, the flesh or the spirit? There's no condemnation, but you won't have peace and you won't experience life. He goes on to say in verse 9, he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. And circle that word dwell. Because the word dwell means to be at home or at rest. And so ask yourself the question, is the Holy Spirit at home or at rest in you? Now, the Spirit is in you if you're born again. He's going to say that in, in just a moment. But is the Spirit at home and at rest in you? If the Spirit of God is in you, then where you go and what you do, what you meditate on and what you give yourself to, you are bringing the Spirit of God into that. Now, does the Holy Spirit feel at home and at rest in those places, doing those things and thinking those thoughts that are ruling and controlling your mind. He's there, but is he dwelling there? Is he pleased to dwell there? Or is he just there saying, oh God, I don't, really don't want to watch this right now. I really don't want to be doing this right now. I really don't want to be drinking this right now, taking this in right now. I'm here because I'm here, but I'm not at home. I'm not at rest. I'm not dwelling in you. He says, now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. I Meaning, if you're not born again, then you don't belong to him at all. He, he's not even in you. But if Christ is in you, 
The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? If Christ is in you, then the body, the flesh, is dead because of sin. So what does that mean? It means that if you, as a Christian, you have the spirit of God, but yet you're trying to satisfy your life through the deeds of the body, then you fail. It's not going to work. Because the body is dead because of sin, because Christ is in you. That's why, especially for the Christian who's trying to live according to the flesh, they're the most unsatisfied of all. Because they have too much of the Lord in them to enjoy the world, and they have too much of the world in them to enjoy the Lord. And so if Christ is in you, listen, the body's dead. You're, you're, you're trying to fill yourself through the, the means of the flesh. Good luck. It's never going to work. But the spirit is life because of righteousness, meaning that if the spirit is in your life, then as you yield to the spirit and live in the spirit, then you're going to experience life, the abundant life that Jesus called. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. What does that mean? It means this. Remember I quoted a moment ago, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus said, don't seek after the things the Gentiles seek after, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, you know, where you're going to go, all those things. Jesus followed that statement by saying this. He said, your heavenly father knows that you have need of these things. Meaning every one of us still has a body that needs to eat, that needs to be clothed. We still have something inside of us that needs to be satisfied, a cup that we desire to have filled and overflowing and running over, like David said in Psalm 23. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, if you live after the Spirit, if you yield to the Spirit and His power and His presence in your life and His will for your life, then you're going to find that He quickens your mortal body. Quickens means made alive, energized, fulfilled, satisfied, meet the needs of. That when you live according to the Spirit, what you're going to find is that the body becomes irrelevant because it's satisfied. doesn't mean I feel like I'm on high on heroin all the time. That's not what he's saying. But it just becomes where I'm not thinking about it. I'm not being governed by it. I'm, I'm so into his will for my life right now. I'm so into who he is to me right now in this moment that those things will come. Those things will take care of themselves. I don't have to plan my day around when I'm going to eat my meals or what I'm going to be doing tonight or what the next great event is that's going to make me feel happy or that I can be excited about. I don't have to live that way. I can be satisfied in Christ right now to a point where those things will come and go, but they don't matter. They're on a lower plane. He will also quicken your mortal body. Therefore, brethren, as he lands us, don't worry, we're not going past verse 14 this morning. We're almost finished. But he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Do you hear that? Do you know what it means to be a debtor? To be a debtor means that you owe something, right? If I'm your debtor, then I owe you something. And what he is saying is that you owe your flesh what? Nothing. You ever heard this phrase, in your own mind? You know, you owe it to yourself. 
Why are you laughing? <laughs> you know, you owe it to yourself to just relax tonight. You've had a tough week. You owe it to yourself to indulge a little bit, to back off on. You owe it to yourself to sleep in this Sunday morning. It's, you owe it to, and, and you know what Paul is saying? You owe your flesh nothing. That debt has been paid. Do you guys find it amazing that a weed in your yard can live on almost nothing? I mean, when there's a drought, right, in the summertime, and the grass is brown, the weeds are four feet tall. <laughs> they, they need almost nothing, and that's the way our flesh is. It's like a weed, and it needs so little. You give your flesh just this tiny little bit, and the flesh, it's strong, it's alive, it's so loud. It's, oh, yeah, I don't know. And yet we feed the spirit, we feed the spirit, we feed the spirit, and it feels like, man, what in the world? You owe your flesh nothing, nothing. We're debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. There'll be a death of joy, a death of spiritual fruit, a death of spiritual truth, ultimately a physical death if we allow the flesh to control us too much. But, contrary to that, if you... Through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You say, I've heard everything that you've said so far, but what about these powerful, sinful tendencies that are in me? What about the things that hold me that I find myself still yet powerless over, even though I know that the Spirit of Christ dwells in me? How do I deal with these difficult sins in my life? He gives the answer right here. He said, if you, meaning that we have a part to play, through the Spirit, that's him, do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. In the days of Samuel, before there was a king in Israel, and the nation was floundering, the Philistines which were the enemies of God, a picture of our flesh, a picture of the things that conquer us, the picture of the constant battle that we face. The Philistines were overpowering the children of Israel. And they were losing the battles constantly, so they said, well, let's do this. Let's bring the Ark of God. It represented the presence of God. It contained the tables of law, you know, that box with the angels and everything that you saw in the movies. They said, let's bring the ark into the battle and see what happens. So they grab the ark and they bring it into the battle and they lose. They were using God superstitiously. Well, if we do this, we'll win. And they failed. Just like when we say, I'll do this, this godly thing, and, and I'll win. And we fail. And so the Philistines conquered Israel yet again. But this time they took the ark of God, that holy instrument, and they brought it into the temple of Dagon their Philistine god, the fish god. And so they made an altar and they put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon next to Dagon, this pagan fish statue. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 5 that when the Philistines came into their temple the next morning to worship, Dagon had fallen on his face. This idol that had been set up, this false god, 
had fallen on his face in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of the Lord. And so they did what any rational person would do. They repented. No, they didn't. They forced up all their their might, and they picked up Dagon, and they propped him up again on his stand. And they went about their business, went about their day. Well, the next day they came in, and this time, not only had Dagon fallen on his face, but his hands had broken off, and his head had broken off and had been severed. And only the stump of Dagon remained there in in the temple of Dagon. And so then they did what any rational person would do. They repented. No, they didn't. They said, we got to get rid of this ark. <laughs> we got to get rid of the presence of God. Because the presence of God is not allowing a false deity to stand in its presence. These two things can't coexist mutually at the same time in this temple. And so one of them has got to go. And so they came up with a plan and they got rid of the Ark of the Covenant because they chose rather to worship Dagon, this false god. And herein lies the truth to how you and I experience freedom from the sins of the flesh. We do not go into that temple and try to push it down ourselves. We don't go in and try to push Dagon down. We bring the Lord in. We bring the Spirit of God into our life. And when the Spirit of God comes into our life, the influence of God, the truth of God, the love of God, the person of God, when we allow His presence to be brought into our temple, then piece by piece the Dagons begin to fall. It's amazing that it happened incrementally, isn't it? First Dagon fell, then the second time his hands were broken off and the head severed. As we bring God in, those things will naturally die because the two things cannot coexist at the same time. You say, well, how, do, how does that happen? What does that look like? How do I bring God into my life? Well, it begins the first thing in the morning when you wake up. You roll out of bed and you drop to your knees and you say, Lord God, let the spirit control my mind today and not my body. That's where it begins, right there. Because the Bible says that he will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. Is he a liar? No. And so I ask him, first thing, Lord, you rule in my life today. I want your will, not my own. Then I allow God to have that place in my life of being first. So when I'm making my choices about what radio station I'm going to listen to on the way into work, I wait a quiet moment and I let his spirit whisper in my life what it is. God, what what am I to listen to today as I go into work? Writing your will upon my heart and upon my mind. Hearing your voice. Letting the peace of God rule in my heart. Letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly. And then as I hear him whisper to me, listen to a Bible teaching today, not Tom Sipis. You know. Then I yield and I say, yes, Lord, I want the word in me. I want the truth in me. I want life and light in me. Lord, would you have me get away today and just read for a little while on my lunch hour? And I do that and I allow his word to come into my life. And as I just do these things, walking with him, relating to him, 
then Dagon falls. The fleshly things have to go. Amazingly, the stump remained. And the stump remains. And if we choose to say, you know what, I like Dagon. I like the things of the flesh. I like those things. Then we have the choice, because God doesn't take away our free will, to get rid of the presence of God and let those things remain and grow and be strong in our lives. But the two things cannot dwell in the same temple. One will go. And it's not God saying, well, I'm going to leave. It's us saying, I'm going to push you out. It's us not letting him in. The word became choked, Jesus said, and it became unfruitful. Because we desire the other things rather than God. It's quite simple, really. We allow the light to come in and the darkness flees. If you, through the Spirit, not by your own power, but through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the Spirit comes in and those fleshly deeds are mortified, crucified, and brought out of our life. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's a moment-by-moment relationship and walk with Him. Allowing Him to lead, govern, speak into my life, fill my life with Himself, and the other things happen naturally. Sanctification through the Spirit. His will written in my heart. His voice whispering in my ear. His word dwelling richly in me as I allow his word to have its influence in my life. The power of his Holy Spirit making all of those things work out in me. And my walking with him, loving him, and letting him love me, letting his love into my life, it produces sanctification in my life. And so in closing this morning, I just ask you these questions. Who's controlling your soul? Who's controlling your mind, your emotions, and your will? Is it the body? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? What am I going to buy? Where am I going to go? Or is it the spirit? Lord, I want your life. Lord, I want your influence. I want your love. I want your kingdom. I want your leading and direction in me. Lord, I want you. Which is it? Am I allowing him to sanctify me? He answers when we ask. And am I willing to say, Lord, forgive me? Lord, change me. Lord, I confess I've set up these idols in the temple where your ark dwells. And I desire that those things be taken out. Lord, teach me to walk in the light and to walk in your ways. He's called us into this glorious relationship and to be sanctified is life and peace. That's his will. That's his desire.